Good morning. On Thursday afternoon, shocking news from Dublin city centre. Five. Uh, by the way, a serious incident has been declared uh, on Parnell Square East uh, at around uh, two o'clock. It is understood uh, that a man has been treated at the scene and three children have been taken to hospital with suspected stab wounds. The area has been sealed off and declared a crime scene. A five-year-old girl and a woman in her 30s are in hospital with critical injuries. The two other children were treated in hospital. On drive time, just after five o'clock, Cormac was joined by Labour Senator Marie Sherlock. Uh, you're a public representative in this area um, and it's extremely distressing, this attack, uh, which happened in Parnell Square, as we know. What is your response? Well, I think today is a very harrowing day. You know, it's a, an, an ordinary, what, what should have been an ordinary Thursday. The children lining up outside their school to go to aftercare. These were junior and senior infants. And, you know, a, a routine that happens every day of the school week. And then these absolutely harrowing set of events where we now have three children and a woman in hospital. And I, I think while our thoughts are very much with um, the families of those injured um, and I'm and, and, and very much hoping that they pull through and make a recovery. Um, our thoughts are with all the, the you know, the, the, the school community, because I think while there's a sense of shock and it's it's surreal today, I think the, the impact of the trauma tomorrow and next week and in the time after is is, 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 is really going to be yeah. extremely difficult. Very much so our thoughts are with uh, those impacted indeed. It was a shocking incident, but so many people in the area came to help, risking their own lives. They created a cordon to protect the children. A Brazilian delivery driver jumped off his bike to try and stop the man. And then the Gardaí and the emergency workers arrived. The very, very best of Dublin. But then, as the Gardaí tried to contain the crime scene, a violent mob which grew and grew and by Thursday evening riots and looting on a scale that has never been seen before. Vicious and frightening. On late debate, Colm O'Mungon spoke to Ema McCauley from the Journal who was in the city centre. Absolute chaos, Colm. So it started off at the cordon around the scene on Parnell Square East earlier today. Gardaí doing a very hard job there. People hurling abuse at them. Uh, shouting kind of anti-immigrant and racist sentiments and shouting abuse kind of at the media as well. One journalist in particular was getting harassed. Uh, I was videoing it because I was reporting on what was going on and a guy pressed himself up against me behind me and told me to stop recording. So it was an intimidating situation even then. Since then, what emergency services and Gardaí have faced in the city centre is uh, frightening. I think it's very rare that we see something on this scale. Uh, we've seen, you know, Gardaí getting pushed over, holding riot shields on Parnell Street, fireworks fired in the direction of Gardaí. You know, a, a Dublin bus was set on fire uh, at the top of O'Connell Street. A Lewis carriage was set on fire. So, you know, it really is like a large scale of damage that's being done to property. Uh, Gardaí at this stage have all the side streets around O'Connell Street kind of cordoned off and they've closed off the area um so tonight what you would have seen is people mostly men with masks on running away down those streets with bags full of looted items i've just walked home down capel street um towards the dorset street area 
And as I was walking home on Capel Street, there were lads in masks with big wooden sticks smashing in the front window of a shop premises. And there were people living in flats above it looking down. I'm sure they're absolutely terrified. I got out of there as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, it, it really is a scary situation. Also joining column, Dermot O'Leary from the National Bus and Rail Workers Union because transport throughout the city was affected with some services pulled completely and buses set on fire. We've also reports on one bus driver being physically pulled from a bus uh, on O'Connell Bridge, uh, assaulted as he was pulled from the bus and that bus was also set on fire. Reports from O'Connell Street, from our representatives uh, that are in O'Connell Street, that Lewis lines were physically pulled down uh, from, uh, you know, from the height that they are at. The overhead power lines, is it? The overhead power lines have been pulled down as well. It does behove civic leaders, uh, you know, community leaders, trade union representatives like myself, to condemn utterly these tugs uh, these despicable people that uh, you know carry out this type of destruction, and uh, what does looting say to any uh, uh, social dis- discourse? It's just opportunism uh, of the worst and of the lowest uh, type of behaviour. And again, the MBIU uh, column rep- is a broad church, I suppose, represents eighty plus nationalities across the transport companies we represent, and we made a call at eight o'clock tonight from, from my office uh, to suspend all service in Dublin right. bus and to advise both air and drivers. And yesterday, Dublin City woke up and assessed the full scale and extent of the damage. Here's Garda Commissioner Drew Harris on Morning Ireland. Overall, we have 34 arrests, 32 of which will be appearing before the courts this morning. Uh, We have 13 uh, shops which have been uh, damaged, significantly damaged, or uh, have been subject to looting. Uh, we have 11 Garda vehicles either destroyed through arson or very extensively damaged and with three uh, buses, public transport buses destroyed and a Lewis train destroyed. And yesterday, so many accounts of people frightened. On the news at one, Keen McCormack spoke to the manager of Nero Cafe on O'Connell Street, Renata Lisko. So my area manager came and we heard that there's some stuff happening at the upper so she went to check up there what's going on and then she sent me a message to close the shop down. It was like around 7 p.m. because the guards were pushing all the protesters down the road. So when I got that message, I told all my customers they need to leave and literally a minute after that, there was just screaming and shouting and there was hundreds of people running down the street toward the Connell Bridge. Uh, we closed the store, we stayed in the store, we couldn't leave until half nine, something like that. So there were multiple burns here, there was Garda car burning, bus burning, there was some burning in the Abbey Street, I'm not sure what. Uh, there was people everywhere, mask people, there was Garda everywhere, riot Garda. It was really, really scary last night, to be honest. And on Clareburn, shaken Dubliners waking up to a still smouldering city. Evelyn O'Rourke brought us these voices. I live on Gardner Street and my kids have been terrified all night. We could see black smoke. I think people that went out and caused trouble do not represent what happened yesterday. I don't stand for it at all. I know people that live in our block that have kids in that scale traumatised. Not knowing if their kids are safe, pure fear. So One parent just said that she was terrified. She didn't know whether the child was okay or what child it was. Everyone's just thinking of the poor family, that them kids. It's just madness. We could see police 
had the road blocked off. They were telling people to stay in and not to come out. It's shocking that we're not safe or that you can't feel safe. Another one, he's like, ma, I don't want to go to school. How can you tell them, like, school should be safe? It's just shocking. It's disgraceful. The city this morning has gone to a standstill. I mean, it was just absolutely disgraceful. Were you shocked by how quickly it went? I was, but I don't blame the police. I was just shocking. Like, it took people three, four hours to help them walk and... Yeah, a bit nervous, but she's nervous. The kids are shocked, like all our friends. I say there's probably seven or eight of them not going to school today, like because of what happened last night. But she's asked me all morning, so I brought her in. It deflected from what happened with the children, them writing. It was just a, an opportunity for them to go writing. And... and in almost every voice, anger and disbelief that something like this could happen in our capital city. With Claire, Richard Shakespeare, Chief Executive of Dublin City Council. You, you have to get the work um, going and, and maintain it and, and get that place sorted. Now, we know Arnis is going to open at 12 mm. and the GPO will be open at 12 as well. But do you feel in some element of shock this morning? I was fundamentally depressed. I really was when I walked through the, 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 the streets this morning. Um, and just senseless, senseless stuff. You know what I mean? And they, Those thugs don't represent the Dubliners I know or the city that I love. Mm-hmm. Richard, we let you get on with the work. I know you have to get back out there. Yeah. Are you okay? Are you worried for you? Is it worry for your staff or disappointment and sadness in, you, in your city that upsets you so much? It's a bit of both. Yeah. And as the city cleanup continues and businesses try to get back on their feet, questions as to how something like this could have happened. On Morning Ireland, Justice Minister Helen McEntee. I know you say it's only a small group of people, but for hours last night, the city centre of the capital was out of control. It was a no-go area. How was it allowed to get so out of control? Well, what I think is important to recognise is that Gardaí contains this, for the most part, to a very small area. Now, it is beyond... This was our main thoroughfare and I acknowledge that and I think the scenes were incomprehensible for most people. It looked very contained, Minister, to be fair. They managed to contain this to a very small area Yes, there were incidents and individual incidents which expanded out beyond the O'Connell Street area and Henry Street. But this was for the most part contained in my midnight last night. Order had been restored to our city. But this was a group, a violent mob of thugs and criminals whose sole focus was to wreak havoc. And it is a very volatile situation. Gardaí need to protect themselves. There were a huge number of Gardaí who were uh, assaulted, who were spat at, who were uh, the victims of vitriol and hate themselves. And we need to protect them and keep them safe. And I cannot commend them enough. I think they responded in the way that they felt was appropriate and that was required. And they are trained. They are the people on the ground who do this day in, day out. But I think what's important to acknowledge as well, the fact that we don't see this often means that the Gardaí, of course, they will take what happened last night, they will adapt their response and they will make sure that from today, from this morning, throughout the day and over the weekend, there is a strong presence and that they stop any type of gathering like this from happening again. And while Dublin's north inner city has been the focus of media attention for violent incidents in recent months, it was far-right groups that have stoked these tensions. Gavin put this to the minister. Your government has been warned for years about the importation of hate, the funding of these groups by US and UK sources. Have you failed to take these warnings sufficiently seriously? No, we have not. Um, These are constantly monitored. And yes, we have seen tensions escalate across Europe. We have seen tensions escalate across the world. And this is a situation that is always monitored here. It's something that I speak to the Commissioner. So why weren't Gardaí ready for them last night? 
this is not something that we have seen before. They do monitor social media. They do look at content that's been shared. They do look at what is happening in other jurisdictions and they have always responded accordingly. And that is what we saw last night. Let's not forget the Gardaí responded. They put themselves at risk. They managed to quell or to, to disrupt a situation that could have escalated and gone on for much longer. They contained it to a smaller part of our city centre. But I am devastated for those in that part of the city. These are businesses. These are people who get up every day, who go to work, who now have to face absolute devastation on a time that should be coming into Christmas where they're busy. So we will support them whatever way that we can, not just the Gardaí, but government as a whole. And we will make sure that this does not disrupt people's lives any further. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has estimated the cost of the riots at tens of millions of euro. And the cleanup of the city continues. On the news at one, anti-racism campaigner and local election candidate for People Before Profit, Dara Adelaide. And Brian put this to him. Is it also though fair to say that there were people who would be appalled at what happened uh, last night in Dublin, would have nothing to do with anything like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Who, who would also have genuine concerns about migration, uh, refugee policy. Are, are those concerns th- that need to be addressed? Well, people say this thing about valid concerns. I mean... When you talk about, for example, uh, the violence that happened there, it was a Brazilian immigrant who uh, who stopped the attack. And I think we all owe a massive debt to him for being there at the time. And you can't tar every single immigrant with the same brush of you know one particular person you don't like. We can't be collectively punished for the actions of one person. And so I don't buy that there is some sort of inherent... Uh, violence uh, involved with being from an immigrant background or from being a minority. In terms of, uh, the, I think, the majority of the arguments that are made around immigration are economic ones of, do we have enough houses to house everyone? Uh, we're one of the richest countries on earth and if we could house people back in the 20s and the 60s, you know, building massive uh, uh, housing projects like a Marino and then later in Ballyfermot, then we can do that now. It's a failure of government policy. Uh, the same with the, you know, people talk about the waiting lists in the healthcare system and people who talk about, you know, uh, let's have a, a conversation about mm. migration. Look at the demographics of the people who are working in healthcare. Sure, uh, the system, from Daly, yeah. The system would fall apart. Uh, you know, and we're going through a time where there's a massive labour shortage uh, in Ireland, where we need more workers, especially in construction, especially in uh, in healthcare. And the idea yeah. that kicking people out would solve the issues is completely wrong. From the news at one. And to finish, this contribution from Sarah Mohammed, an Irish Sudanese pharmacist who works at Hollis Street. Because it was really frightening, I won't lie. Yeah, but you, you were a hijab, so that does that make you yeah. feel vulnerable today? 100%. Sadly, it does. It does make you feel like you are a target because you are visibly Muslim and you know that people will kind of hold that against you. Even though it's, you know, it's not an inflammatory thing to be wearing the hijab. You're not harming anyone. But to know that then you are the target. And even from yesterday evening, there have been discussions among my friends. And I know that people's parents have been telling them, like, would you not take it off for your own safety? And I know that comes from a place of love and care and concern. But my, like, I don't want to. I personally really do not want to, but I know it does make me a target. But then I think at the same time, I'll be a target either way, because even if I take off my hijab, I can't change my skin tone. Two of your friends had their scarves ripped off yesterday, is that right? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. In the midst of all of this in the city centre? Yes, yeah, yeah. Which is 
horrific, but... It's devastating, yeah. Sarah. It's, no, it's it is. devastating. It is. it is. And I think now we're just in a bit of, like, shock because this is never... It doesn't even represent Ireland at all or the Irish people. Mm-hmm. Every time an incident like this does happen globally, the very, the very next day, not even the next day, the very next minute, you find out their religion or their ethnicity. Immediately I looked in my group chat yesterday and people were like, just be careful. It's, it's going to be bad, the backlash. And it is quite, I find it quite frustrating to have to bear the responsibility of somebody else's actions because it's out of your control and it's not really fair. But it is the essence of racism to blame an entire group of people for one person's actions. Back in a bit. Welcome back. With Miriam, homeware designer Helen James and a story you don't hear every day. Her family had moved from England to Ireland in 1968 where her father was appointed Islamic curator at the Chester Beatty Library. However, he started to steal and sell artefacts over a number of years. But one day, his theft was discovered and he was arrested. What was that time like for you? It was like a chasm in all of our lives. It, there was, you know, there's that those points in your life where there's before and after. And it was just a completely ripped our entire lives apart. It was, it was first of all, unbelievable. So I was actually away in Spain for the summer and How old were you about? I was going into my final year in college. I was in NCAD. Um so I was 22, 21, mm. 20, 21, 21 I think. Um and also my parents had been living away so I had been living on my own in Ireland having a great time for the, f- the first couple of years of my college life and then I got off the plane from from the summer in Spain working with my friends and my parents weren't at the airport to collect me thought that was strange I was with my boyfriend at the time and his dad was there and he gave us a lift home and when we got to the house uh, my brother's girlfriend opened the door in floods of tears and said, your dad's in the bridewell. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I went down to the bridewell and I remember walking in and my brother and my mother were there and it will, my father looked like he had been deflated. It was like someone had just let the air out of him. It was... And he was standing up and he was... And he had, he had already admitted to everything. And um, he just, he was crying, which was uh, was unbelievable to see, you know, he was such a kind of, you know, that was, I'd never, ever seen him cry. I never did again, actually. I never saw him cry before or after that. And um, he was just, he looked frightened, actually. He served two and a half years, first in Mountjoy, then in Shelton Abbey, the open prison. And life, as the family knew it, was over. Everything changed. You know, our whole lives disappeared overnight. Everything just, you know. And then there was the sort of immediate, like, opening the paper. And it was the front page of the supplement and all these details about our lives. And that's sort of the the press that you don't want, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of... um, And, you know, photographers standing outside the door and, and... um, it was very bizarre. It was very, very bizarre. And then just the 
the shock of what he'd done and what ha- and what happened and the shame and the incredible shame that he felt that my mother felt and that all their their lives all their friends you know or the, their social life just completely disappeared you know and my mother who had done nothing had no idea or overnight her life just evaporated and her mother then had to provide for the family my father's pension was taken away like income we had no income um she f- had a young child like I was 21 but my younger brother was only 11 and she just she went back to work having she was a she is a trained nurse um, and she went to work for the Jesuits in Cherrywood who were um just incredible incredible so supportive to her and she still talks about them all fondly um so she was then left with no income with my younger brother and my father was in prison you know she'd lost her her social circle friends every, you know everything um it was devastating for her she yeah but she's a very stoic and very strong woman but for Helen James herself, a woman in her early 20s, a transformation of sorts. At the time, I wasn't angry at all, strangely enough. And like it was it was really it was because it was also a particular time in my life where I was kind of discovering myself and, you know, finding out who I was in the world. I was living in South County, Dublin. And in a, in a very strange way, I kind of found it a bit liberating in terms of expectation of who I was supposed to be or what I was supposed to do or you know my parents were very liberal and very open and artistic and all our friends you know lots of friends who were creative and you know the house is always full of of creative people but there was this sort of subliminal pressure in terms of conforming to a certain unspoken way of you know dressing or behaving or you know Mm. um and I and when it happened I just thought you know what I'm just going to be myself and I actually completely changed the way I dressed and what I wanted to do and the rest was well New York fashion Donna Karen and eventually coming home to Ireland and the move into homeware now she's got her own brand this was Miriam's final question to Helen James. Finally, given your big success here now, when you look back on your dad, I know he went to the UK and he died. Do you forgive him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. And there's definitely sadness there. And there was anger later, you know. Um, but, but yeah, for sure. From Sunday with Miriam. With Ray Nilo, his second album is called November Medicine. He's up for an RTE Choice Music Award. And yes, he's a rapper. Because everybody thinks they can rap, don't they? <laughs> no, but they do, don't they? Yeah. You, you, you know. Yeah. A lot of people do. A lot yeah. of people doing it that probably shouldn't be doing right, Haven't right. put in the work. You know, when you hear something, you're like, ah, oh, that's a bit cheesy or that's a bit... You know, and as an Irish person trying to rap as well, you have to go a bit extra because, you know, like, I don't... You hear it in my lyrics, like, I don't talk about the usual stuff. A lot of it is very emotional, very much about relationships or society and stuff. Like, I can't be out here rapping about things I don't know about, like, selling drugs or being with lots of women or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> my friends would be like, what the hell are you talking about? That's not you, you know, so... Yeah, yeah LA. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Tonsilla. Tonsilla. Silla Mafia. But this is a breakup album, so expect a little bit of pain. It's so nice to be able to transmute that kind of pain into something 
positive we'll say you so know. it's therapy yeah it is therapy yeah and e- and even if t- some people don't like it or think it's too out there or too vulnerable like I could be talking about way worse stuff you know and this was something Ray wanted to get into as did Nilo did you need therapy is the question I I've suppose. definitely been in therapy a oh, bunch of times yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 I do find it very helpful I actually think every single person should go to therapy you know I think a lot of people go to therapy to put up with people who don't go to therapy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think so, anyway, you know? Um, That'd be, yeah, if we yeah. all went to therapy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think it, there's definitely a generational thing as well, where some generations like in Ireland think it is, you have to have really something wrong with you to go. And that's not necessarily true. I think everybody should just learn how to talk about stuff. And people are professionally trained to help you through your life, you know. Yeah. It is expensive is the only thing. It's it really is expensive, expensive and, and not freely available to people who don't have the money. No, it's hard, but yeah. It, 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 like, and it's interesting you say about a generational thing mm. because for my generation, mm. nobody in Ireland went to therapy. Mm. And it was kind of frowned upon. Almost. It was. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. stigmatised. Yeah, stigmatised. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, the issue. It's not that people don't want to get... St- it's the stigma that's yeah. the issue, yeah. And I wonder if we change the spin on it, that yes. it's sort of preventative. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So you go to therapy so you won't need therapy. If you yeah. don't, does that make sense? You go to therapy so that your family don't need therapy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, does a national therapy couch we'd be needing. Nilo with Ray and a bit more from him later. Yesterday, the start of a four-day ceasefire and the release of hostages held in Gaza. And as some families greeted loved ones with relief, others, including the family of nine-year-old Emily Hand, wait for the names on the next list of hostages to be released. And given the Israeli government's repeated insistence that there would not be a ceasefire, as this would allow Hamas to regroup, on Wednesday's Morning Ireland, this question from Gavin Jennings to Dan Williams, Reuters' senior correspondent based in Jerusalem. Why do they change their minds? Well, that's an excellent question. This all the way to the uh, the top of the Israeli government, and this was also echoed among Israelis, Israel's Western partners. The word ceasefire was not one that was uttered. It wasn't one that was accepted. What Israel spoke about was humanitarian pauses, which at the time it described as lasting no more than a few hours as required, and which indeed it instituted on a very, very localized level for humanitarian corridors where Palestinians were encouraged to evacuate from the war zones. Now it would seem that there has been a shift. Now it does appear to be a ceasefire of uh, four days, perhaps longer if this proves to be a more protracted deal. But interestingly enough, Qatar, which, as I said, is the country that mediated the deal, the language of its statement on the deal used the term humanitarian pause rather than ceasefire. So it would appear that among the parties uh, at least mediating the deal among the parties talking to Israel and the United States, there was an agreement to keep moving ahead with the word pause. In other words, um, restoring or amplifying the uh, Israeli approach that says when this is over, the war continues because Israel had two twin uh, war goals. One was um, recovering the hostages, which appears to be now partly underway, and the other is destroying Hamas. So Israel, at least now publicly, wants to signal that it fully intends to resume the fighting as soon as this agreed lull ends. And although this pause or ceasefire is only for four days, this may change. On Thursday's drive time, perhaps a more hopeful view. Sarah spoke to Israeli journalist Gideon Levy. And there, there is some expectation as well that the ceasefire could be extended uh, by a day or a number of days. If, if 10 hostages were released, you would get a day, an extra day ceasefire. Um, 
I wonder how much how much wriggle room do you think Benjamin Netanyahu has on this? Is is there a possibility, do you think, that this ceasefire could be extended indefinitely? Absolutely. I don't know if indefinitely, but it will be extended if there will be more hostages released. And uh, Netanyahu can pass it uh, without any problems because uh, the national sentiment is now all about releasing as many hostages as possible. That's the, the national sentiment right now. Israel is quite united over this. Don't forget we are dealing now with small children, babies and mothers. Everyone wants to see them back home. So there will be no problem to extend it unless uh, the government will feel that uh, the Hamas is pulling it and pulling it without any return. And then, uh, then I guess uh, it will stop. But uh, I'm quite optimistic that this ceasefire will last more than four days. I hope so. And after that, um, when the hostages, if, if we just assume that it goes on until all the Israeli hostages have been released or, or until the vast majority of them have been released, what, what is the national sentiment about what should happen after that, Gideon? Unfortunately, the national sentiment is still for continuing the war and crashing Hamas, which is the official goal of this war. Uh, I'm not sure it is possible. I'm not sure that it will happen, but that's the sentiment. How will it go on in the same intensity? I'm not sure. For now, at least a ceasefire. Back in a bit. Welcome back with Claire. Rotting stag. Who doesn't want a bit of rotting stag in dark, cold November? Especially when it's Ain and Ilana bringing us lines like this. Yes. Can I tell you how innocent we all are here in tell the office? Me. Can't imagine innocence in your deer. We thought in the same that sense. a rotting, rotting deer meant that they were, you know, bashing their antlers together. We didn't really realise that the rotting is the other bit. He's doing the bowl thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you don't listen to Mooney Goes Wild enough. Because <laughs> in actual fact, and to tell Jim as well, they're not looking for women, they're looking for men. Now, I don't mean that in any pejorative sense or right. any kind of a, of, a, of a referendum that's needed or anything. But... What happens in the world of deer is that the stag gets all the women. There's not mammy and daddy and little baby and lovely handsome couples. The male stag stag fights with all the other males and the winner takes all. So the rest of them get nothing and he gets everything. So he's looking for a fight? Yes, he's looking. I mean, he's key, he, this is his territory. These are his women and these other fellas are to be run off. So they go absolutely bananas. And they're absolutely, I've seen them myself below in Killarney, the same red deer. And they have antlers locked and they're shoving and pushing and poking and running. And they're running off the other males. So they're in a red frenzy, calling in a warp spasm wouldn't be the same. <laughs> and they're just looking for, because once they've got rid of the other the other Tenders, then sure the women are. That's that's a private affair. They're not lepping out in the road looking for women. They're lepping out in the road because they're running after fellas. They can smell the smell of the testosterone. The whole. I mean, the idea of a stag party isn't for nothing. I mean, you go away. You're not. We're not calling it a bull party. Or we're not calling it a, a ram party. It's a stag party because the amount of testosterone that they have and the amount of fighting and it's a really hard job because he mates with all the females. All the babies are his. 
and in two or three years' time he could be mating with his own children. So he doesn't. That obviously doesn't happen because we wouldn't have the situation. Wouldn't nature wouldn't allow such a thing to happen? They'd all be inbred. So he's only top of the pinnacle, pinnacle for a year or two at the most, and, and the then next he fella gets pushes him off. Pushed off. Yeah, so he doesn't want to go. The Alfred doesn't want to go, and the new fellas don't want to be having nothing in there because it's all or nothing, Where's and only one gets all. Gulp and this can be a problem, not just for the punier stags amongst us. No, if you're out in the road, you don't want a gamey old stag hopping on your bonnet. So, in the absence of their natural predator, the wolf, us humans have got to cull. People get very upset though when you talk about deer culls, don't they? Uh, you yeah, know but you're, this. Yeah, no, but you're, I mean, you know. But are you in? Fi- are you saying we? This is what we should be doing more of. I know we do a certain amount. Well, I mean, of it, you we? have a food chain, and you have the food chain. Each level keeps manners on the level beneath it. And if you don't have something to keep manners on the level beneath it, then it's going to go out of control. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I didn't invent the laws of ecology. I didn't make these rules up. I'm only explaining them. So don't be giving out to me because I'm against deer. I'm not. I'm only saying we have nothing to keep manners on the deer. So. Well, humans have to step into that place instead. And by yeah. doing this, you know, in a, in a controlled, in a, in a scientific fashion, by taking out the weaker ones, not the stronger ones, as the wolves would do. Wolves wouldn't catch the great big stag with 10, 11, 12 points. They'd catch the, the bockety fellow who didn't win the fight. And, and, you know, so the weaker ones were taken out by, by wolves in the olden days and culling would be done in the same fashion. So with that scientific justification in mind, keep the boot free bit of venison for the Christmas. If you want to eat clean meat, that's what you want to be eating. Okay, so your solution is to eat them. Eat them, yeah. With the Darcy comedian Shane Daniel Byrne. He's got a podcast and just listen to the tone of Ray. Uh, Young Hot Guys That's right <laughs> It's the name of the podcast It's you uh, Tony Cantwell And Killian Sunderman And it, it's It's rel- it's just a little baby podcast We're on episode 3 Just oh. came out today And we are on the Head Stuff Podcast Network Which is the number one The best uh, They won their podcast awards The other day The best network in the country And we are the number one is Comedy the only podcast one? in Ireland No there's many networks Oh is there is right, right. I thought it was the only one We're coming for you <laughs> Us the independent guys We're coming for your gigs right Yeah um, No it is really great So it's the three of us Just chatting And it's like do you know, like we some podcasts are real themed and some are just you know really us winging it and we're just very much us winging it and if three men like spend enough time in each other's company eventually a podcast will arrive that's well, just the way that that's, that's, that's the way that's, things work that's evolution. That's, that's evolution that's evolution now yeah, they yeah, just yeah, appear yeah. suddenly either hunt bison or make a podcast next thing you know you're subtitling clips you're putting them out it just happens and before you roll your eyes going oh just what the world needs three more men talking in this instance they're talking about candles Mm. Well, the candles are changing, right? As men, remember they used to be metrosexuals a few years ago. That yes. was the thing. That That's, was men. Who, that, that could be fifteen years ago. Yeah, Shame. but that, it moves yeah. so. It can't yeah. changes so quick. Yeah. I don't know what they are now, but anyway, men can light candles now, and that's great. And uh, yeah, we. Are, I think they're marketing the candles towards men a lot more now because they're called like husk and bog, and tree and spit. Right. <laughs> That's the name of candles now. So, uh, but actually, they don't smell like anything. Remember when can- when scented candles first came out in the late nineties? The they came along with the scented of chemical vanilla. Mams across the nation were going in getting them at Christmas only. Yeah. Now they're every night of the week, and I support that. <laughs> I am I am a proud gay man, and um, aromas, fragrances—that's all very important to the texture of our lives. Well said, spit candles. We need them. On lyric, the place we go for the rest for our head. This from a man who should know better. A train leaves Cork travelling at 75 miles per hour and a train leaves Dublin travelling at 50 miles per hour. When they both meet, which is the nearest to Cork? Of a Sunday, Sean? Really? 
let it not happen again. Oh, the answer for those sick puppies who like this kind of thing? Well, of course, when the two trains meet, they're exactly the same distance from Cork. Now, the cynical amongst us might raise an eyebrow when we hear about performers with a backstory. However, with Brendan on Monday, stopped in our tracks we were. It was our 1985 Eurovision entry and a story that was extraordinary. Wait until the weekend comes Then we'll have what time it takes To sort it out To see it through Wait until the weekend comes Sundays always change your mind And make you laugh taffeta dress is so reminiscent of the time and you look extraordinary on stage and you I don't look blind excuse me I don't look blind the first of many twists and turns in the story of Maria Doyle Couche she is remarkable well <laughs> you can say it well tell me tell me about that that's just fascinating to me well, my lovely little taffeta dress came from pennies. I paid thirty pound for it at the time. Yeah, I, I didn't have any big designers like you making me a lovely dress, <laughs> and um, and I loved it. And then we pair we pair of shoes that I bought as well in Dunn stores, and. Um, the, the whole situation was that I went blind when I was nine. Now, in the 70s, there was there was nothing for you if you were blind or if you were different, and especially if you were a wee girl. And they sent me to a blind school to become um, a telephone operator. Now, I didn't want to become a telephone operator, so I, rang, I ran away from Dublin, and I made it all the way home to Dundalk in County Loud. I had a wee medal around my neck, a wee holy that I got at my communion. And I remember I used to hold on to that wee medal the whole way down to Dundalk, and I was 10, Brendan, when I ran away, ran away from St Mary's School for the Blind. And as I held on to that medal, I'd look up to the sky and I'd say, please, God, don't let them find me. Wow. They didn't. So from that day on, Brendan, I decided not to be blind. I didn't talk about it. I didn't speak about it. And I pretended to be this little girl that could see, you know, and that. So my mind can see, like my brain, it can see. So I can visualize very quickly when I'm in a place for over maybe five, ten minutes. I know everything straight away. I have a great memory. Maybe so. But the Eurovision stage with the orchestra, the cameras, the lights... When people watch the performance, and I urge you to go to YouTube and watch your 1985 performance, you take camera direction flawlessly because you didn't tell people you were blind, did you, at the Eurovision? No, no, no. The only woman that knew about it was the, the director, you know, the, the producer. Mm. There was a big, huge uh, cross on the stage where the backing singers would leave me. And she knew, you know, even without me talking about it, by the way they were guiding me and they'd bring me onto the stage. I did my same performance every time because every morning for a week you rehearse your song and and because I was first on, I rehearsed at 8 o'clock every morning. So I did my same little actions and my same little look. And I would wait until the weekend comes and you can catch the tide. And I would put my... So she knew exactly what I was going to do. And she told the cameras what to do. Wow. So it was wonderful. So it made it look like I could see. And she told Brendan about when she first lost her sight. She was nine. I was just at school, like it was autumn, back to school, delighted to be back at school. And all of a sudden, I was just looking at the 
teacher the blackboard and she was writing on the blackboard and everything just started going really fuzzy and weird like fog imagine like a thick fog coming in from everywhere so I put up my hand and I said miss there's something wrong I, I just can't distinguish anything anymore and uh, she said we're going home and I went home and mammy helped I don't know if you remember this old salt containers at the time and, and yeah. I think they still exist you know the red and white tall salt yeah. table salt yes and mom held mommy held that up and she said read that read what's on that Maria and I said mommy I can't so she took me up to the eye hospital now I didn't know what blind meant you know when you're nine nobody around me was blind um nobody had bad eyesight I didn't know you could go blind I thought this was like uh, Doctor Who was going to come out of his telephone box and say I was part of a show like you know yeah um it was just, I didn't know what was really happening. And then within within six weeks, that was it. It was over. Uh, 95% blind, leaving me with just a wee bit of light, which is unbelievable. I'm still, I still know when it's dark and I still know when it's the day. And I, I think that's a miracle. And because her blindness was transmitted genetically, it was then that she made a discovery. The man she thought was her father was not, in fact, her biological father. No, that was the Spanish man. Her mother had become pregnant in the 1960s. And she was sent to London, Brendan, uh, to hide her pregnancy. And two priests picked her up in London and they brought her back and she was incarcerated in one of uh, Ireland's Madeleine laundries. Now, I know we call the mother and baby homes today. I don't like calling them that, Brendan, because what happened there and what Mammy went through... Um, a home is where you're loved and where you feel safe and it was the opposite so I was born in a Madeleine laundry and mum was there for 10 months and that's where I started my life and I was called Stephanie my name was Stephanie wow. yeah so um, they wanted mummy to adopt me and give me up and as they would hold the papers up to you know the adoption papers yeah. the nuns would kind of point at the papers and they'd say you've nothing to offer your child you'll be able to do nothing for her you need to adopt sign these papers my nanny Isabel from Dundalk at the time taught mammy was in in, in England and um when she found out that um her daughter wasn't in England she did she she tore down mountains and rivers and everything <laughs> to find out what her daughter was and she found us Wow. And when she found us, she signed us out. She signed us out of the home, out of the Madeleine Laundry. And that was it. I was free. Mammy and me were out. Extraordinary. Now she moved to France, raised seven children, decided to get back into music. She was on The Voice in France and in Ireland. But it is for her work on inclusion and equality and advocacy for the blind that has earned her the Presidential Distinguished Service Award for the Irish Abroad. And yes... The mammy's coming with her. For somebody that was completely excluded and hadn't in, anything to do with inequality from her birth until for years and years and years, I'm getting this medal for inclusion and equality. Congratulations. It's just wonderful that I'm coming home and, and that I'm going to be bringing mammy with me. Amazing. The, That's to, wonderful. Yeah. And the very best of luck with everything else you do. An amazing story. Maria Doyle Kush with Brendan. Well, that is it from this week's playback. We talked about him earlier and we will finish with a song from Nilo. This is called Only Human. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. I'm with you and every inch of all your sorrows All blonde and black like every hint of my tomorrows we wind our paths through roots and woods and live on borrowed time. I'll take those lens, but I'll be blessed if you want to just be friends.